0: Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We are going to keep exploring a thought that began in the last episode. We saw that Jesus and his disciples were located in the culturally noisy location of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus has popped his most confronting question to date, who do you say I am? The disciples, led by Peter and empowered by the Spirit, are able to affirm his true identity, and this new revelation, this new theological development, is being affirmed by Jesus. So far, it's been well done for catching what the Holy Spirit has shown you. This in and of itself is a major step forward in their formation as disciples. The ability to engage with the Holy Spirit and see Jesus for who He really is, is a foundational step, as we will see when Jesus continues to affirm them in this next passage. Let's continue to read from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Dan Spader, author of Four Chair Discipleship, explains that there are roughly four motions, or figurative chairs, which speak of stages in a disciple's formation. He calls the first one a seeker, where somebody might notice Jesus for the first time, and in that moment decide they would like to explore his claims. We could argue that the twelve men following Jesus all this time began that way, answering a call to come and see. Spader calls the second motion or chair a convert. Somebody who after exploring these claims begins to realise they actually believe them and are interacting more deeply with them in a way that their own life begins to transform. There are moments in this podcast journey where we have seen this take place, the most distinctive one being the disciple's posture of worship towards Jesus in a boat after he calms a storm. If Jesus wasn't God, then this was idolatry in the eyes of the Jews, so there would be significant ramifications if they were getting this all wrong. The third chair Spader simply calls a disciple. He explains that this involves a shift in mindset, and I'm paraphrasing here, from I believe, and this is all kind of cool, to I believe, and I will wholeheartedly follow. It would seem that the 12 men doing life with Jesus are doing this roundabout now. Jesus has shepherded them to a place where they would need to reach a verdict about who he was, and he was counting on the Spirit to be at work in revealing what needed to come out for them to do so. It's fascinating to learn that the whole Trinity is involved in this process. And once their mindset moves further in the right direction, some new elements of their formation begins to be made plain, and that's what we're reading about now. It starts in this passage with a poetic change of name. In this moment, Simon becomes Peter. Simon means a hearer or listener. Peter means a stone, a rock cut for purpose and intended to fit into a planned structure. Now, it's true that Peter apparently is, well, Peter, all through the gospel accounts. But we need to remember that these accounts were not being written in real time. Peter was the known name in the early church as these were being compiled, so it makes sense that his new name, if you like, was being used through the whole account. But in reality, the change happens in this passage, just months from the cross, and only after the disciples have grown to the point where they can live up to the name. It's important to note here that this is not just a case of one man getting a new identity. It's a statement to the whole group. The question that Jesus asked, which triggered all this, was a plural one. Who do you all say I am? And it is believed that Peter's answer is stemming from a unanimous position. Therefore, all of those present with Jesus in that moment shifted from being listeners to rocks. They moved on from just listening in and checking things out to becoming fixtures in a structure that Jesus is now talking about building. And this structure is mentioned for the first time in this passage, the church. It is clearly not going to be built from bricks and mortar like the temple was, but flesh, blood and spirit. After describing the disciples as stones, Jesus makes himself its foundation with this statement. On this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is saying here that stones like you, Peter, will be built on the foundation stone of me. That foundation stone is evidence in the confession you just made. I am that Messiah. I am the divine Son of God. I am God's promised anointed one and equal with God in every way. On the foundation stone of Jesus, the divine Messiah, the church is built. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. All of a sudden, we see that this third chair of your growth in faith, by its very nature, is designed to bring you into community with other like-minded believers. Your stepping up and your confession of Jesus as Messiah and Lord moves you into a place where you will have a part to play for the benefit of others, and you will be required to rub shoulders with other disciples often to maximize the value of your confession. This is further evident in the social order that is being described in the statements of Jesus here. You'll notice that Jesus didn't offer to be the foundation of a temple or even a synagogue. Such structures were not sufficient to do the work Jesus had in mind. It needed a structure that would have worldwide influence, not merely something the Jews alone would understand. And yet, Jesus didn't offer to be the foundation of a palace either, indicating it wasn't about ruling from one earthly throne. Instead, he states that he will be the foundation of a social structure that the Greek world, the Gentiles, were already quite familiar with. The Greek word for church here is ecclesia. It is recorded in the words of Jesus only twice, specifically to address its foundation and its relationships. The social order called the ecclesia was already well known as a democratic assembly during the golden age of Athens. In fact, it was a system at least six centuries in the making, in Jesus' day. In Athenian culture, the Ecclesia was open to male citizens who had completed at least two years of military service. This was simply one way of ensuring it contained people who understood civic duty and the decisions that needed to be made. Aside from that, there was a decent sense of equality in it. There were no class divisions. It wasn't just aristocrats doing their thing but the working class got good representation as well. It also contained a surprisingly large number of people. At one point in Greek history, it is said to be around 43,000 people. They met often to decide war and military strategy, to elect governing officials and magistrates, and to discuss and vote on the things which affected the welfare of their city. Ecclesia actually means to be called out. And thousands of citizens in Athens would be called out up to four times per month to make decisions which affected and protected the well-being of their entire city, not just themselves. It was a privileged position that affected thousands more people than they would personally know. It was essentially the giving of yourself to something greater than yourself. Interestingly, they didn't have secret ballots in their system. Every vote was done with a public show of hands, so everybody knew where they stood. It worked as a good system, seemingly healthy enough for that social order to be adopted by Jesus himself. So in all this, Jesus tells the disciples that the revelation they've just received, the revelation they have bravely spoken out, would be the foundation stone and statement of a movement that would come together in equality to seek the well-being of the context of life they've been called out from. Yes, they could, as the Athenians did hold leaders to account each year and they certainly did those things. But every decision had community welfare in mind. There would simply be too many people in the ecclesia for any single agenda to be pushed. It would be unified in its resolve. It would be highly effective. The city the ecclesia of Jesus returned to would be blessed and this ordained social order would stand for all generations as long as the right foundation was being built upon. Not even the forces of death and the grave would stop it, beginning in a few months with the foundation stone himself. There is still so much more to explore in this discussion in Caesarea Philippi, but we will end this episode with some important reflection. Are you ready to take your faith to the next level? When Jesus looks you in the eye and asks, Who do you say I am? This is what he is wanting from you. He is wanting to see you take hold of what the Holy Spirit is revealing to you in that moment. He is wanting you to step out of the convert chair, where you are simply looking, listening and taking it all in and moving into a new lifelong season where you are living in active belief. No longer a seeker, no longer a convert, but now a lifelong learner, a disciple. Incidentally, the fourth chair in Dan Spader's thesis is that of a disciple-maker. At some point, you'll be called to not just be one, but reproduce others. But we'll get to that in future episodes. And this disciple very clearly does not operate in a bubble or go it alone. There is in fact no instance in scripture of a healthy Christian expression outside of ordained community because your step into discipleship makes you a building stone in a vitally important ordained social structure. Its foundation is Jesus, and you and I are built into something powerful and transformative when we come together to be built on Him. So, will you step into that place of true discipleship under the leadership of Jesus the Messiah, forsaking all other lords and gods and all other sources where you've previously placed your hope? And will you take your place in the structure Jesus is building? If he's the foundation, it will stand. And you are designed by the Spirit to be an active part of what he is building in your neighborhood. If you are new to faith, I want to really encourage you to find a local church where their expression kind of makes sense to you and your faith journey. If it's possible, try to make that as close to your home as possible and serve there with a good amount of energy as they work together to be a transformational force in your neighborhood. And if you're a little more seasoned, but perhaps a little aloof from church, can I encourage you to get back into community once again. This faith that we have, and this revelation we have, is designed to be expressed with others. If you are a committed believer, you are a sacred stone in the hand of God and you are intended for use in the sacred blueprint of Jesus for your community. Let Him use you as part of what He is building, and trust Him as a foundation that will never give out from underneath you. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page, and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.